today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. The stock market took a tumble yesterday, and Economic Advisory is warning that an economic slowdown is on the horizon. What does that mean for us? What does it mean for you? Let's bring in Craig Alexander, Partner and Chief Economist at Deloitte, and with us now. Thanks for taking the time, Craig. We appreciate this. No, it's a pleasure, Scott. So we saw the stock market take a tumble yesterday. Has this already started? Well, I think what we're seeing in the stock market is anxiety about the fact that we're likely to see interest rates headed headed higher. And in in point of fact, what's been happening is the economy is doing quite well. In the United States, it's firing on all cylinders. Unemployment has come down to a five-decade low. The Federal Reserve is raising interest rates. Now, when it, when they started raising rates, rates were very close to zero. But as, they, as they've lifted them steadily over time, we're now getting to a point where the stock market is starting to worry about, about further rate hikes applying breaks to the economy and, and that having a knock-on effect in terms of uh, dampening corporate earnings. So I think that you know we were probably overdue for a pullback in the stock market given the run that had taken place. Uh, but I do think that the market anxiety is right, that in point of fact, we're going to see a moderation in growth. Now, keep in mind, in the United States, that moderation and growth is actually going to be coming down to something that's more sustainable than what, what we've been getting. The, the large tax cuts that, uh, that Trump provided to the U.S. economy uh, provided a, a lot of gas to the, the engine of the, of the U.S. economy at a time when unemployment was already low. And so we're going to get growth near 3% in the U.S. Uh, this year, and then it's going to come down to a little over 2% next year. And that's going to have an impact on Canada. And the Canadian narrative is that we have uh, a Bank of Canada that is incrementally and very gradually raising rates. Uh, this is going to act as a headwind on, on real estate, and it's going to cool consumer spending. You know, it isn't going to be bad. It's going to just, you know, the consumer spending is going to moderate. And that, that's going to lead to a slowdown in economic growth to, to something that's still healthy, but slower. And then I think when we get into 2020, I think that the story becomes... A, a little, a little more negative because uh, one of the one of the realities is if you give a big tax cut to an economy one year and it lifts economic growth like it is in the United States right now, then 12 months later, if you don't give it a similar boost, your growth rate will actually drop back. And so America is facing significant fiscal drag in, in 2020, and that will impact Canadian export growth into the U.S. market. Considering the U.S. economy is has been on an upswing for a few years now, was that tax cut needed? Should that have been saved for when times were difficult? Well, the, the, the timing actually was regrettable. The, the The economy was already doing well. The unemployment rate had come down to levels that were telling us that there wasn't a, a great deal of slack left. And then we had one of the biggest tax cuts in American history. And, you know, a byproduct of that is that, you know, fiscal policy, that's tax policy, has been stimulative, but the Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates. And so in point of fact, you've been seeing government policy and monetary policy working in opposite directions. Mm. And, you know, clearly that's not optimal. So, you know, I think that, 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 that the, timing was, the timing was regrettable. It did provide a, a boost to the U.S. economy. Um, but then it's going to, then it's going to have a bit of a hangover. The other, the other issue is when we look farther out for the U.S. economy, one of the challenges is that their fiscal situation is nowhere near as good as it is in Canada. The U.S. 
government debt issue is going to come back to haunt us. But it's not a 2019 story or 2020. But as we get farther out, I think the U.S. fiscal challenges are going to are, are going to increase because America hasn't set aside money for Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. So the so an aging population is going to put a lot of pressure on on U.S. fiscal fiscal balances um, at a uh, at a time where there's not going to be you know a lot of additional capacity and they've run up debt quite a long way. You know, Canada's in a better situation. You know, e- e- even though the federal government is running deficits, the the share of debt relative to the size of the economy is still quite low. I think the big challenge Canada has is we've been too dependent on the consumer and real estate to drive growth hmm. for 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 years, and now we need to see more investment and exports, and we are seeing that happening this year, and I think we'll see that a bit in 2019, but then I think the export picture is going to get more difficult in 2020. Uh, as you mentioned, great times for the U.S. in recent years, tax cuts and such, but is all that trickling down to the average American? Um, well, it's certainly true that, that, that employment is low, and you are starting to see the tightness in the labor market creating, um, creating wage growth. But America does have a challenge with rising income inequality. And, you know, in Canada, we talk a lot about income inequality as well. Uh, but the experience in Canada is very different than in the United States. The, the levels of income inequality in the U.S. Are, are far greater than they are in Canada. Hmm. And since about 2000, income inequality in Canada has actually been surprisingly flat, whereas in America, it's continuing to climb. Um, now, that actually creates a challenge for Canada because... If the U.S. is willing to pay their their high income earners more and pay their 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 lower wage workers less, you know it creates a challenge as to how Canada competes with the United States because they're paying more for high talent and at the same time putting pressures on wages at the bottom end of the scale, which creates a competitiveness challenge. So sharing a border with the United States, being so dependent on the U.S. for trade. Uh, the rising income inequality we're seeing in America actually does create strains and challenges for Canada. You talked about a U.S. hangover. Will this happen in time for a U.S. election? Will it be after the next U.S. election? Uh, so we'll have the midterm elections this November, and then we'll go out two years, and then we'll get the, presidential, the next presidential yeah. election. And so by the time we get to that point, I think economic growth in the United States will be will be slower and we will be seeing some of the fiscal drag from the, the we will have seen some of the the, the the hangover from from the tax cuts. So yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be part of the, the, the economic narrative. Lots of chatter of late in regard to tariffs, of course, finally getting uh, the NAFTA deal done or the new USMCA, as I believe it's called now. Um, how has that settled things down? And, 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 and what about tariffs and how that's going to affect? There's still tariffs on the steel and the aluminum industry. What about those? Yeah, so in terms of the, the, new, uh, the new free trade ag- agreement, um, it, it, it was unambiguously positive for Canada from an economic outlook point of view. Um, if America had applied the tariffs they were threatening on Canadian autos, it would have really hurt the Canadian economy. It could have driven Ontario into recession. And so it was, it was a material threat. Um, you can quibble over some of the details of the new trade uh, agreement, but what it really does is it lifts a cloud of uncertainty. And so, you know, businesses have been 
cautious in terms of their investment, waiting to see what was going to happen in terms of what what the new trade arrangement would look like or whether tariffs would be applied. So I think that the the, the uncertainty was was pulling down economic growth in Canada in recent quarters as as events unfolded. So that cloud of uncertainty has been largely lifted. The the deal still has to be passed into legislation. So there's still a risk out there. Um, but it, it, it does lift a, a key downside risk off the Canadian economy. But the risk of U.S. protectionism is still present. And America now is applying tariffs on half of all the exports that China sends to the United States. Um, if the tariff war escalates, if, if America puts on tariffs on the other half of the Chinese exports, the, this could materially impact uh, global economic growth negatively. I think it already ha- is having some impact. But so far, the impact's been limited. I think if if things escalated from here, the economic consequence consequences would go up. So, you know, the the risk of 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 further tariffs is is one of the one of the biggest risks to the economic outlook. Um, there's also the risk that America might apply tariffs uh, on on products outside of outside of China. So, for example, one of the concerns is whether he might consider tariffs on imports of automobiles from outside of NAFTA. And that, uh, that, that, that would also have a negative impact on the global economy. I mean, the, the challenge here is that protectionism always sounds good from a political point of view, that you're, you're protecting jobs in your domestic economy. But in point of fact, it actually makes everyone worse off. Every time the U.S. applies new tariffs, uh, we tend to mark down U.S. economic growth prospects because it, it might help a, a specific U.S. industry, but it hurts the overall economy. So, for example, it increases consumer prices, and consumer spending is 70% of the U.S. economy. So if you do something that's bad for the U.S. consumer, you might save a few jobs on, on, in one sector, but you, you're, you're going to lose out on an aggregate basis. And so that's, that's what's so dangerous about, about the, the protectionism. So I think the two big risks to the economic outlook is, number one, we're going to see central banks around the world moving interest rates higher in, over, the, over the next couple of years. And the question is going to be, how does the world economy and financial markets respond to the fact that we're moving into a higher interest rate environment after such a long time of low interest rates? And, and so the, the, you know, there, there, there's going to be risks there in terms of, of how central banks conduct policy and the impact it has on the economy. And then the second big risk out there is protectionism and the uncertainty related to could, could tariffs, more tariffs get applied and could this escalate? And that's a political risk, and it means that it's very hard to forecast. Uh, about a decade ago, it was all about China investing in, in other parts of the world. Um, uh, interest rates, how long were they going to stay low? They were going to go up any time. Then all of a sudden the conversation changed to this becoming the new norm. Does this, does this signal that we're in, that we're in for a change, we're in for a, a steep rise? I mean, again, interest rates been traditionally low for, for uh, decades now. Uh, if all of a sudden there's a change in that with the debt level that Canadians are, are carrying right now, it, it could become it could become very problematic. So are, are we are, are we heading back to a time of recession? Are we heading back to a time soon of double digit interest rates? Well, no, I, I think that what we're going to see is is the Bank of Canada nudge interest rates a little higher, but the level of re- interest rates are still going to be low. I, I do think the Bank of Canada is likely to hike rates. In, in this month by a quarter point 
or or in December. And then next year, I think interest rates will come up a bit more. So in total, over the next year, I think I think interest rates will rise by about one percentage point. And that's something that that consumers can handle. It it might impact the the spending growth. It might slow down spending a little bit. Uh, but it isn't going to cause a major problem. But what 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 we're really going to see is is the Bank of Canada gradually sort of weaning Canadians off of off of cheap cheap debt, and and this is a positive thing. This is a healthy thing. I, I don't I don't see a recession in 2019. I, I think that there's a risk of of slower economic growth, particularly in 2020. But you know, I don't think that the the most likely scenario is 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 a significant downturn. I think that the the point is, you know, we we went through a period where we were feeling like we were trapped in a slow growth environment, and then things picked up, and it picked up enough that job creation was strong enough to bring unemployment down to, you know, in Canada we're hovering around a forty year low, and so there's not a lot of slack left in the economy. You look at the production, um, you look at the amount of uh, unused plant and equipment that companies have, and that the, the productive capacity has been used up. So, you know, the, the, the economy is basically using all of its resources right now. And so as a result, you know, we're going to see the Bank of Canada raise interest rates a bit, and that is going to slow down economic growth. The other thing to keep in mind is the Bank of Canada raising rates is actually helpful because at some point down the road, we don't know when, but at some point, make no mistake, there will be another recession. We, and we, we, it, it'll be hard to know what's going to trigger it. But, the, you know, you want interest rates up so that when the economy needs more support, the Bank of Canada can, in fact, lower interest rates. Yeah, you got room to play there. Right. Uh, what about our standard of living? You know, it sounds that we're doing. It sounds like we're doing so well. Unemployment at, at record lows, but we hear so much about precarious work and, and people having one or two jobs, three jobs just to make ends work. Doing contract work. Is it is their standard of living increasing? Um, it, 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 it's in it, the standard of living in Canada is rising, but I think it's actually fair to say it's not rising as quickly as it did. Uh, in prior in prior decades or for prior generations, so what you know if you look at, at the if you look since the end of the the Second World War uh, and you look at the the rise of the standard of living of Canadians, what you find is that eighty percent of the increase has come because we've become more productive, we've been more innovative and more creative, and with 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 our workers, we've been able to produce a lot more, and then. When you look at productivity today, the pace of productivity growth has slowed enormously. So whereas you might have been getting an increase of the, in living standards of you know, 2 or 3% a year, nowadays we're only getting like 1% if we're lucky, 1% a year. So yes, things are, you know, standards of living are improving, but they're, they're improving at a slower rate. And I think that's one of the reasons why people feel like it's a lot harder to get ahead. Um, that we have seen a shift in the labor market in terms of an increase in temporary contract, you know, sort of gig, what they call gig jobs. Um, and, but those, but that is still not the bulk of the bulk of employment in Canada. You know, if you look at the, the share of, of precarious work in, in, in Canada, um, about, you know, it's, it's about 40% of employment is non full-time permanent employment. And of that, half of it is, is part-time. 
And so the other half is the part that we really think about. The other part is the, the group that is taking on temporary contract positions. And, um, you know, what's really hard to understand about what's going on there is that a lot of the increase is being affected by um, demographics. So, for example, if you look at the rise in part-time employment on a net basis, it's almost been all uh, age 55 plus in recent years. And so older Canadians are leaving the labor market, but not completely. And so they're staying attached in a part-time way. Um, you can see it in terms of uh, contract jobs. You have workers that leave their, like, leave their full-time job, they retire, but they stay attached to the company as a consultant or getting a, getting a, a, a contract to do more periodic work. So some of that is healthy and positive. The challenge is that then there's the group of workers, and there is an increasing number of them, that are being forced to take temporary contract jobs because they simply can't find, find anything else. And those are the workers that we really worry about. And I think those are the workers that are facing challenges partly because our, 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 our public policies that are designed to help support workers are not designed for temporary contract workers. So like if you look at employment insurance in Canada, yeah, good point. It's, it's really designed for full-time permanent workers that lose, that lose their job. It's not really designed properly for temporary gig contract workers. And so, you know, this means that at the end of a contract, there's probably a 50-50 chance of you not immediately having another job, and now you're, now you're facing a period of unemployment. Um, and those are the workers that we desperately need to support more. Well, this, you talked about progress since the Second World War. It seemed every generation progressed. Will this generation have less than their parents or more than their parents? There's, lots of, have, there's lots of yeah, myths I, I, surrounding that. Is it yeah. accurate? I personally believe that, that you know, this generation will have a, rise, a higher standard of living than their parents did. But the point is that the increases you're seeing are smaller than what you had in the past. Right. And if you're, having, if, if, if you're not seeing as dramatic a change, you know, it, it can feel like you're not, you're not getting ahead. You know, it's, it's, it's very similar in, ter in terms of the economy. When the economy is growing at 3%, which is what we had in 2017, it actually feels like things are pretty good. When the economy is growing at around 2%, which, which, or just below, which is actually the economy's idling speed, it's, it's what we can actually support with, with current demographics. The, you know, the, a, a good pace of economic growth is around 1.7%. In that environment, it actually feels like you're working hard to get ahead. You know, and if you get down to 1% growth, you know, the economy is still growing, but it feels like a recession. And so I think that there's a psychological dimension here that people are, are likely to continue to feel like living standards are not rising um, uh, significantly when in fact they actually are. It, they're just doing it in a very gradual and slow fashion. Keep in mind also that when we think about living standards, you know, the techno technological revolution is completely changing the way and the way people live mm -hmm. and, and, and how they interact and, and the, 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 the way they conduct themselves over, you know, what, how they spend their time, for example. So make no mistake, things are changing and they're going to be very different. But if we think about it in terms of like rising standards of living in terms of household incomes, you know, I think the issue is that household incomes are going to increase, but at a very slow pace. 
Fascinating discussion. Craig Alexander has been with us, partner and chief economist Deloitte. Craig, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Anytime. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Should non-helmet bikers pay more for insurance considering the higher risk of injury? And, of course, uh, lots of chatter on social media. Feel free to jump into the fray. I've got a press release here from the Sikh Motorcycle Club of Ontario. It says, uh, Ontario's government for the people under the ongoing practice of promises made, promises kept, is moving towards granting turban-wearing Sikhs the right to freely express their religion by allowing them to ride motorcycles with their turban. An exemption for Sikh riders will make Ontario the fourth province in Canada to grant such an exemption. Alberta, alongside B.C. and Manitoba, and as well the United Kingdom, have already recognized this this basic right. Sikh Motorcycle Club of Ontario has several other civil rights supporters welcome this expected exemption as a recognition of civil rights and religious expression. On behalf of Canadians, we thank Premier Ford for his leadership. This exemption shall be another milestone in the long-standing Canadian tradition of championing championing human rights. Uh, Ontario has 40% of Canada's Sikh population. All right, uh, with that, lots of discussion about is there an issue regarding insurance? I don't think people want to get in the way of religious freedom as long as it's not harming others. That being said, uh, many of us who pay for insurance, uh, especially if you're involved in in risky behavior, pay more. Uh, If you're a smoker, you pay more for your life insurance. If you speed or have many traffic offenses, you'll pay more to drive on the roads. Should it be any different if your insurance company is aware that you're riding a motorcycle on the streets of Ontario without a helmet on? Let's bring in Peter Georges, Director of Consumer and Industry Relations, Insurance Bureau of Canada, and is on the line with us now. Peter, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon. My pleasure, Luke. So your thoughts on all of this. What is, uh, what are your, what's the Canadian uh, or what's the insurance company's view of motorcycle riders without helmets? Well, our concern with anyone uh, on the road is, is that they be safe and use, you know, all sorts of safety measures from seat belts in cars to helmets when they're riding uh, bicycles and motorcycles. And so that is the, the critical message here is to do what you can and take advantage of safety features to minimize injuries uh, from crashes. Uh, and, and unfortunately, our roads on a daily basis have crashes and injuries, whether it's pedestrians, cyclists, skateboarders, drivers, passengers. Uh, we need to do a better job. We need to uh, make our roads safer. And so when we look at this issue, um, you need to understand, I guess, also the population. And so from the insurance industry's perspective, there is no method currently and uh, that allows an insurance company to know what percentage of its motorcycle population that it insures uh, may be of a specific religion, like Sikhs. So it's difficult to, if not impossible, um, to group those risks. Uh, you know, people who are riskier drivers, that shows up on their driver abstract. A person's religious beliefs and religious followings doesn't show up anywhere. So we can't necessarily look at how you group those and, and, and charge a, a rate that might be according to their risk they present. So there will be no adjustment of rates for people who wear motorcycle, who drive motorcycles without helmets? 
Um, as things stand today, no. And, uh, you know, we look at similar provinces uh, that have enacted such legislation, Alberta earlier this year. Insurance is about uh, data and statistics, and so we would need some time also to determine whether or not that's having an impact. And at that point in time, if there is a case that can be made, then that, that discussion will be had. But when you look at Ontario's road safety report, and the most current one that's available is 2014, it shows that in terms of motorcyclists who were um, killed, so fatalities on the roads, uh, there was about 56 in 2014 and, and uh, five motorcycle passengers, so 61 individuals who were on motorcycles who were killed. And of that, um, people not wearing helmets were only in 1.7% of those fatalities. So it basically amounts to one person who wasn't wearing a helmet. So there is a little bit of a baseline that exists based on the is that from the province? Is that from the province or the? That's from the provincial government. That's the Ontario Road Safety Annual. But is report. that really is that really a- uh, accurate in the sense, Peter? Because it's illegal, so nobody would be doing it. If it becomes legal, won't obviously more people do it? Well, you know, drinking and driving is illegal too. But we still saw in 2014 uh, that there were 13.8 percent of uh, of crashes involved uh, individuals who were impaired uh, greater than. So despite the fact something may be legal or illegal, now there are behaviors that people do. And so from our perspective, as you noted too, you want to charge the appropriate rate for that behavior. If someone's a good driver, they're going to get good rates. If someone's a bad driver, their rates are going to reflect that. And so with this issue of helmets and, and, and motorcycles, the law is currently that you have to wear a helmet despite that. Uh, The most recent data, as I said, in 2014 still showed that one person who was killed on a motorcycle wasn't wearing a helmet. Um, So might that be the the baseline that is used going forward? Uh, We will wait and see. Is this a discussion about religious freedom, though, or is it a discussion about risk? Uh, And again, you said you, you can't ask what anybody's religious... Uh, background is on, in regard to insurance, but if you're riding a motorcycle and you're you're putting forth a policy, you can certainly say you got to be wearing a motorcycle. You got to be wearing a motorcycle helmet in order for this policy uh, uh, to be in place. I mean, that's you know that's just the way it is. So a- at the end of the day, uh, if your risk is higher not wearing a helmet, why would that not be reflected in the rates? Well, and, and again, you know, that's a valid point. It's a question of how do we get to that point? Because right now, when you like to me, for, to me, when to you me, apply for insurance, Luke, there's no way to ask that question. You and can't it's Scott. Hang on a second. Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's Scott, not Luke. Oh, Luke's my producer. That's okay. But sorry, no, to me, no to me, to, to me, this isn't a religious discussion. It's it's okay. You want to you want motorcycle insurance? Do you wear a helmet or not? That's what well, the decision is. That's what and, the discussion. And is. I think perhaps that's the question that because this is all mandated by the government. The in- application forms that we go to fill out whenever we apply for insurance is mandated. Insurance in Ontario is heavily mandated by and overseen by the provincial government. So if the government says to insurance companies, you can ask a question for motorcyclists whether or not they wear a helmet, um, then that question will be asked and, and that will be factored in. Right now, we don't have the ability and so that makes it difficult, if not impossible, because you're assuming everyone is following the laws. 
And so when you have now... So, so you're going to see some change in process here because, again, you know, the law is you have to wear a helmet. Now there's been an exemption. So now that there has been exemption, an exemption, that question can be asked, can it not? Well, it, it will depend on the government if they want to allow uh, that to be asked. But again, just because you have an exemption doesn't mean that everyone's going to take advantage of that exemption. So again, someone may say, and... and question I think more appropriately is, um, you know, in terms of will you be using a helmet, yes or no. And uh, ultimately, at the end of the day, we're hoping that regardless of people, uh, you know, uh, which which box they check off, that everyone's riding or driving safely. Uh, It's also about increasing the level of awareness and, and road safety. Insurance companies have been delivering that message for years in terms of everything from impaired driving uh, to uh, distracted driving. We're trying to make our roads safer. So uh, hopefully, um, regardless of whether a person is following their religious beliefs when they're riding a motorcycle, and if they exercise that exemption or not, uh, at the end of the day, if we improve the safety on our roads and, and everyone drives safely, uh, we'll minimize the, uh, the tragedies that we're seeing on roads today. I don't know, Peter. I don't. I don't know if that that argument uh, flies with the helmet no helmet law because uh, it's it's just it's it's obvious. Mo, it's obvious if you, if you take a wipeout on a motorcycle with a helmet on or off that you're going to sustain different levels of injury. Uh, that being said, do you see this as uh, you know this all comes into effect October 18th? Uh, is there now a mad dash to rejig policies or to somehow uh, see how this is going to affect insurance companies moving forward? Well, you know, I think I think following the effective date, uh, you'll have insurance companies that are just going to be um, casting a closer eye on their data in terms of crashes to look to see if the trend is different than from what it is today. And so that will be the point because insurance companies, uh, when they ask for any adjustments in premiums or or uh, or whatnot. Uh, it's, it has to be based on facts and data, right. and so that needs to be that the case needs to be built, and so no one's doubting or no one's questioning that helmet use is important and safety is, is, is should be paramount for everyone. It's just a matter of do we have data now to support this and say, look, here is X and Y, and Y is changed because this is the the group that's not wearing a helmet, and if that's the case, then we need to address that. But until we get to that point, it's a it's a matter of uh, finding the data that will support whatever the situation is. And we don't know what the situation is right now, and it's going to take some time for it to develop. So this could take a couple of years for all this data to be processed, could it not, Peter? Uh, potentially, yes. It, uh, it it could be a while. And and again, part of the challenge if we're looking at, as I said, unfortunately, when I did some research for this issue, um, I'm looking at data on the provincial government's website uh, going back to 2014 as the most current year available. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's a challenge even getting some of that data sometimes. So as it stands right now, this will not, inf- this will not affect insurance premiums if you ride without a helmet. No, there's no way right now that I can see that uh, under the current system, um, rates will be impacted. What about, uh, is this such a, as you mentioned before, such a small segment of the population that it's not going to matter in the grand sample of things? And that may be the case too. It may not be a large enough sample that it will be. A, there will be a noticeable um, uh, change uh, in the data. So again, uh, when we look at, uh, unfortunately, as I said, 
2014 data in Ontario, there were about 20, 235,000 motorcycles registered in the province. And so of that population, there were 56 drivers that were uh, uh, killed uh, on, on road collisions as motorcyclists and five passengers. So 61 individuals in 2014 from that population. So, you know, that's the number that is available here. Insurance companies will look at that, look at their own numbers, and then make determinations on how to react and respond. But again, it's going to require government support if there's going to be changes to the insurance policies. Ontario, the fourth province to do this, uh, has this been a problem in other provinces that you heard of? Uh, how do they handle it? I'm not familiar with uh, with the issues in, in other provinces. Uh, I haven't been able to, in, in terms of some of the research I've tried to do uh, today and yesterday, because the announcement was just made yesterday, uh, to see if, if that's been uh, an issue, and it doesn't appear to be. Uh, so, again, it still is. Alberta only made that change earlier this year. So they're only a few months ahead of us. And uh, you know, British Columbia and Manitoba are both provinces that have government-run uh, insurance. And so the data there isn't as easily accessible or available as, as some other provinces like Ontario and Alberta. So uh, we'll wait and see. So it's not like after October 18th, insurance companies in Ontario are going to be scrambling trying to figure out how to put all this together. As you mentioned, in the end, until the data comes through, it's status quo, correct? Well, exactly. Insurance is like that. We always, when we set rates going forward, we have to look backwards to see what happened, what the history was. So moving forward, we have to wait to get enough data for a year six months, however the period of time is, that will allow us to to paint that picture. So we can't automatically make a change until we have some indication of what's warranted. And it takes some time for the data to be be experienced and and to be accumulated. So uh, down the road, depending on what the data shows, there may be uh, changes or there may not be. So, um, you know, having... It may cause individuals to be a little safer on the roads and be more aware of their surroundings, too. The fact that there are going to be individuals out there who may be riding motorcycles without helmets. So we'll wait and see. Wow, I think it's uh, hoping that the other drivers are, are going to behave because some don't have helmets on. Wow, that, I don't know. Uh, what about age restrictions or passengers on the bike? Would that play into this in any way? Again, I don't know if uh, if the uh, the exemption only applies uh, to drivers or if it applies to passengers as well. Um, that's something again that that will be considered, I guess, moving forward once the the, the final uh, announcement is it comes to fruition next week. So we'll wait and see. But it, the data that we looked at here from the Ontario uh, government shows that there were still passengers in 2014 on motorcycles who were fatally involved in collisions as well. So it impacts drivers and passengers alike in terms of helmets and helmet safety. And I think the message should still be, regardless, uh, you know, try and be as safe as you can. If that means wearing proper attire, leathers, helmets, uh, riding a motorcycle, or even a moped or two-wheeler of that sort, um, you should do so because uh, it's going to help minimize injuries. Peter Cara Georges has been with us, Director of Consumer and Industry Relations, Insurance Bureau of Canada. Peter, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML.
Two astronauts safe after the Soyuz booster rocket they were on, taking them to the International Space Station, uh, failed. As a result, I think after the second stage... Okay. Uh, as a result, the second stage uh, failed, uh, failed to fire, and uh, instead of going up, uh, they came down as a result. Uh, the good news is, is despite pulling, uh, I believe, up to six Gs on their uh, trek downward before uh, getting back down to Earth and, and landing safely, uh, that being said, both astronauts are uh, reported to be in relatively good condition considering. However, the problem that this does present is simply that uh, the International Space Station only has one way up and back and that is with a Soyuz Russian rocket. And at this point, the uh, Russians have, uh, of course, put the uh, whole Soyuz program on hold while they decide what they're going to do and, and, and so on and so forth. All right, so uh, we've uh, had a change of guests here. We're going to have on uh, Paul Takala, chief librarian with the Hamilton Public Library. We're going to bump that back a bit. Instead, we're going to jump to Paul Delaney. Speaking of this uh, story in regard to the Soyuz booster rocket and the International Space Station, Paul Delaney is with us, professor of astronomy, York University. He is with us now. Paul, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. As always, Scott. So what happened here? What happened with it? Because how many times, oh my goodness, how many times has this rocket been up and down to the International Space Station? Uh, is this the first major problem like this? Uh, well, in fact, it, it's one of the only major problems that the Soyuz uh, booster has ever encountered, and it's certainly the, the most uh, significant in-flight failure that we've suffered uh, with this system. I mean, you know, we all remember back to the, the Challenger incident that uh, was, was catastrophic in 1986 where we lost the entire crew. But other than that catastrophic failure, you know, we've never had an in-flight failure like we had today. Uh, this particular booster configuration has flown since 2001, and I think the stats are 65 times flawlessly until today. So it, it's a tried and true, it's a proven uh, architecture, hardware so what happened today, well, we still don't know, but the, the indications are that it happened immediately after what they call booster separation. There are four boosters that are strapped onto the side of a central core. They peel off just after two minutes of flight, and then the central booster takes the vehicle, uh, including the astronauts, all the way from there into low Earth orbit. Uh, that booster has failed, uh, exactly why it failed, uh, we don't know, but that's what generated the uh, emergency abort with the space capsule uh, jettisoning from that uh, booster and then coming back to ground reasonably hard, but nonetheless safely. As an emergency process, did that all work correctly? Obviously it did because we still have two astronauts that are with us, but did this all work? Obviously there's fail-safe systems in this. Did, this, did they work the way they were supposed to? As near as we can gather, it was flawless, in fact. Uh, you know, anybody who was watching the, uh, the broadcast would have recognized the fact that the astronauts, the moment they knew that there was a problem, switched professionally into, okay, this is what we're going to do, and jettisoned themselves from the booster, went through the configuration process, landed. Uh, you know, the whole thing was almost like it was in a simulator from what we can gather. So that part of it worked perfectly. Uh, the fact that you know you think of these contingencies beforehand and you practice them, uh, you know it, they made it look easy, so to speak. But here they are, nearly a hundred kilometres up, travelling at several thousand kilometres an hour, 
and they're now becoming a ballistic trajectory, uh, you know, projectile heading back towards the Earth. You know, calm as cucumbers they were. It was it was actually quite impressive to watch. What would it have been like inside that capsule when this all happened? What would be, at what point would they know something was going horribly wrong? Uh, up until that point, would it have been a normal ride? Uh, as, uh, again, from everything that we were watching of them and the telemetry up until the solid, uh, sorry, up until the booster separation, it was, you know, by the numbers, it was picture perfect. And uh, the astronauts inside, because there is a live feed from the Soyuz capsule, uh, were going about their business, reading their laptop, you know, flicking a few switches here and there. I mean, it was, it was like a drive in the park, so to speak. The moment separation took place, there was definitely a lot more of a jolt than there should have been. And you could see in their body language that there was an uh-oh uh, that, that, that crossed their bodies. Uh, and the moment uh, that the telemetry began to go uh, strange, you know, the call went out across the line that it was a booster failure. As I said, these two guys, the, the astronauts, they are professionals. The moment that happened, they immediately switched down the pathway that said, okay, this is what we've got to do, and they proceeded to head and, uh, and did it. But, yeah, they knew immediately that the separation hadn't gone according to plan. So what would the trip down have been like? Could have been a lot harsher. Uh, Those sorts of ballistic trajectories, they pull a lot of acceleration, what they call G-forces. And depending upon the speed that they start out at, they could have been pulling upwards of 9G, so nine times your body weight during that re-entry because the vehicle doesn't have any way to slow down until it's lower in the atmosphere with parachutes and so on. As it works out, the uh, the G-forces on them were only about six or seven, and they abated fairly quickly. So the vehicle just wasn't traveling fast enough to subject them to uh, a lot of really strenuous G-forces. So it was not, not an easy ride down, but compared to what they would have been training for, it probably was fairly easy. So, uh, again, help us understand at what stage this would happen. The thing takes off, it uses certain rockets to get it to a certain level, and then it goes from stage to stage to stage. Is that accurate? That's exactly correct. So, so it was going from one to the other when the, failing, when the failure occurred. That's exactly right. So two minutes and change into the flight, the four strap-on boosters, they've exhausted their onboard fuel supply, their liquid fuel uh, and then they get thrown off because you know they've got they've got a fair amount of weight even when they're empty. Mm-hmm. So you discard them. The central core then fires up and continues to push the stage, the the booster stage, and the capsule into orbit. And then they peel that one off, and the third stage then just sort of carries them all the way to the International Space Station. It would have been a six-hour flight today from launch to dock at uh, the ISS. So it so, was between the second and third that they had the issue? Well, it's actually between the first and the second. They first call the second. first one with the, when they separate out these uh, rocket boosters. That's sort of the first staging exercise right. that takes place. They peeled off, and you can see that on the, uh, the visual display. Uh, some of the commentary that I have read, and they're much better at reading this than I, uh, indicated that the, the peel-off wasn't as picture-perfect as it should have been suggesting that one or more of the, uh, the strap-on boosters 
came off of the central core booster in a way that wasn't expected and may well have damaged the booster mm. during separation. Mm. Uh, there was more debris, more shrapnel, if you will, in the air than there should have been. As they, you, You've got to be pretty well versed in looking at those plume trails to know that. I didn't pick up on that. It looked right. to me to be normal. But the commentary I'm now reading suggests that that was when problems arose. And obviously the core booster was significantly compromised uh, and it began to lose power almost immediately. So how high up would it have been when it failed? Close enough to 100 kilometers, according to the wow. telemetry. Wow. So, yeah, you're a long way up. They just jettisoned the escape tower, uh, which would have been a different way for them to have come down, uh, and uh, were you know, assuming that everything was going fine, pushing on into orbit, and that's when the call booster failure came through the system. So where does this leave the program now? Obviously, this is the only way up and back, correct? It is, and that's, of course, a very sad state of affairs. We've been that way for the last seven years since the retirement of the shuttle fleet in 2011. Uh, we're still probably a year away from uh, Boeing and SpaceX's uh, certification for manned orbital flight with their vehicles. So, yeah, the Soyuz is the only show in town. Until they establish exactly what has happened here, and again, I come back and say this is a very reliable hardware that they've got, 65 flawless flights in a row. Uh, so it's, it's not a systemic problem. It's not a built-in architecture issue. Undoubtedly, what happened today is a one-off type affair, but they've got to identify what that one-off was and make sure that it doesn't happen again before they're going to resume manned spaceflight. We certainly remember what happened with the shuttle astronauts. How, how lucky are these two astronauts that this thing didn't just explode? Hard to say. I mean, at, at this point in time, because we don't know what the actual failure was on that central core booster, it, it's hard to say whether or not they really did dodge a bullet or whether or not, uh, as I say, you know, a, a bolt got sticky during separation and it ripped out some cabling, so as to speak, and that just sort of shut power down to the booster. I mean, it, it could have been something relatively benign along those lines, in which case, you know, the astronauts weren't in catastrophic danger, but obviously when you're 100 kilometers up and moving at several thousand kilometers an hour without a, uh, a vehicle that has power, you know, propulsive power, that's bad news. But unlike the shuttle Challenger, which literally exploded in, in mid-air as a result of the cantilevering of the, the solid rocket uh, booster on the side, you know, this looks as if it was a little bit of a, a karma failure, if I can use that, that term. Uh, and as a consequence, the astronauts had you know, seconds to decide, yeah, this is what we need to do. This is what our training manual says. Let's go ahead and do it. And they did. They, they separated their capsule out in very short order and started the trip back towards the Earth. They launch these pretty frequently, don't they? Three to four times a year uh, with people on board. And it's, again, a very similar uh, booster architecture that we use for the Progress resupply vehicles. Uh, it's the workhorse of the, uh, of the, uh, the Russian space program. So there's, there's lots of confidence in this vehicle, and uh, you know, rightly so. There's been very, very few failures uh, of the, the Russian hardware over decades. Uh, they, they did lose a couple of third stage or second stage, third stage components back a few years ago, but uh, the, the main core process that uh, lifts the vehicles through the, 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 the work stages of, of launch, the first two to three minutes, that has been ever, ever so reliable.
Are 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 people concerned now? Are are scientists concerned now that we do only have one way of getting up and back? Will that ever happen again? Should we have let let that happen? Should there always be more than one way up? Well, I I think you'll find many people in NASA will be very careful about what they say out loud. But anybody outside of NASA will say it was foolhardy to abandon uh, the shuttle system until there was a replacement. Uh, we all understand that you know maintaining the shuttle fleet was an extensive operation, and the logic went that they had to reclaim that funding to divert it towards the next generation of manned vehicle. However, you know you end up with only one way into Earth orbit, and that's got to be bad news. It really does. Uh, so I, I think it was a mistake to uh, to abandon the shuttle fleet before the U.S. had a viable alternative to take people into low Earth orbit. But that's history. You know, that, that happened. Uh, we're still a, you know, still a year away from fixing that. Uh, I would like to believe that, that NASA will never go that route again, that, you know, as you know, we as, as, a, as, a, as a planet continue to mobilize our space assets, we'll never have a single point failure available to us again, because that's what it is. If the Soyuz goes down, we're stuck, <laughs> period. Yeah, especially with people being up there. Uh, does that speed up the process in the U.S. or with NASA to get it? I guess you can't really speed these projects up, can you? No, you can't, and we're in the final laps at this point in time. Uh, you know, where it should have been sped up was you know, years ago with additional funding. Uh, you know, we heard today, in fact, that the, the NASA equivalent for its big, it's what they refer to as their SLS, their space launch system, is behind schedule and over budget. So, you know, NASA is still under the gun in this regard. Uh, you know, they just don't have the funding. You know, they, they recouped the shuttle funding, but their budgets basically have not allowed for the necessary speed for R&D, right, research and development, to replace the shuttle system. Uh, so the, 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 the time to have fixed that was eight, nine, ten years ago. Not today. So, no, you can't change the timeline now. We're in the final lapse of getting uh, the Orion and the Dragon into certification for, for human spaceflight. If you are on the International State, uh, Space Station right now, how are you feeling? Oh, I think they're, they're disappointed. Um, but, you know, it really doesn't change their day-to-day -day operations much. What will be a problem is the, the science flow that's coming from the space station now. Without more than three people on board, there's just not enough hands on deck to be able to maintain and push forward the level of science. There are three full laboratories operating on the ISS these days, and that really takes three people. Uh, and then you've got the other folks who are maintaining the operation of the, the rest of the station. So when you're down from six to three, you are really in bare-bones science mode. Uh, there's no problem as far as consumables are on board. You know, the, the, the resupply missions have been going like clockwork, so they've got lots of supplies up there. They're in no danger in that regard. They've got their own lifeboats up there, the Soyuz spacecraft. The, the, the big question is how long will they be down and therefore how much science will be delayed by this incident today. So how many are up there now? Three. Three got are up three there up. and they can still come down. Oh, yes, absolutely. They've got, always, there, is, yeah. there is always a lifeboat docked aboard the ISS, three, uh, and there's always enough for three people per. So right. you know, there is only one up there at the moment, but there's only three people on board, so they're fine. 
That being said, how long do you think before things are back to normal and these are going up on a regular basis? That's the grand question. Very early days. I'm going to punt and say that it's going to be a delay of two to three months. I I think the investigation is going to be sufficiently thorough that they're going to be absolutely certain that they know what happened, why it happened, how it happened, put in place the corrective measures. I'm betting two to three months because it's not going to be a rework of the architecture. Uh, As I've said several times already, it's a pretty good hardware setup. They just need to identify what the heck happened with this particular unit, and I'm betting that that'll only take a month or two and then maybe rewrite a few procedures, make sure that uh, you know uh, some hardware development has a little bit more scrutiny. But it's not like we had to do with the loss of either Challenger or Columbia, where we really made hundreds of changes to the flight hardware, to the architectures, to the procedures. And that's why it was between two and three years uh, recovery time for NASA after each of the, the shuttle losses. This is not that type of situation, or at least... I'll be very, very surprised if it is. You know, we've had too many years of good operational status on this booster to think that it really is a hardware architecture problem. How many of these rockets or capsules are there in service? Do they, it's not the same one. They keep, re, they keep rejuvenating them, do they not? That's right. Unlike SpaceX, these are one-off affairs. So, uh, yeah, they, they keep building them from scratch, and uh, everyone is brand new off the assembly line, so as to speak. Uh, so there's probably two or three that are sitting uh, at uh, Bacchanal getting ready for their next sets of flights. There's probably two or three in production, so as to speak. So, again, all of that will probably come to a halt for the time being, pending the outcome of this investigation. Once they identify it, they'll go and look at the existing hardware to make sure that that problem doesn't exist there, uh, and then they'll be cleared for flight, I would expect. So, you know, uh, David St. Jacques, you know, the Canadian who was going to be flying in December of this year, I suspect is going to have his flight delayed into 2019. But I'm betting that it's only two to three months. So uh, in your world, in those that, that do this on a daily basis, how big of an event has this been? It's always disquieting when space hardware goes, goes awry, uh, and especially when you've got people on board. It's bad enough when you lose a satellite because, of course, it's, it's, it's hundreds of people's livelihood that may have been you know, put on hold because of the loss of some particular hardware. So that, that's hard to take. When you have people who you know, could have lost their lives today, uh, that's you know, obviously really, really dangerous as far as the space program is concerned. But space is tough. Uh, nobody has ever said that going into and out of Earth orbit is easy. We'd like it to be routine. It's not yet. Uh, so I think most people, after they sort of you know, calm down from today's excitement, will be very pragmatic about it, and they'll go about it just like any other industrial accident. They will conclude what they need to conclude. They'll do what they need to do, and then they will get back to the business at hand. That, that's what I would expect from the Russian Space Federation and NASA. The ISS is too big a project for its uh, component countries. There's 16 of us involved in this. They're not going to be down for any longer than they have to, but they will make sure that the flight hardware is safe to use. Paul Delaney has been with us, professor of astronomy at York University. Two astronauts are safe after the Soyuz booster rocket. They were on fail during a launch, and an emergency landing was needed uh, as they were on their way to the International Space Station. Another reminder that although how many times this happens, uh, it still is a very dangerous game. Paul, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Take care, Scott. 
The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.